good morning, saints. So glad to be back here uh, with you. My family and I so loved our time here last time, and so we were very excited and eager to come back, and we're very thankful uh, for the invitation to return. We continue this morning in the Gospel of John in chapter 12. I invite you to turn there with me. We pick up where Marshall left off last Sunday. He preached on the passage that describes the events which occurred during the supper at Simon the leper's home in Bethany. And this text brings us then to the next day. We're in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Let me read that for us. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast... When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach your throne of grace through the mediation of your Son and in the strength of your Spirit. And we ask that you would help us to behold the glory of Christ this morning. And may we be transformed into his likeness as we set our gaze upon him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is, Here Comes the King. It's time for Christ to make his way into Jerusalem, and there will be crowds of people there anticipating his arrival. This event is often referred to as the triumphal entry. As we walk through this passage and we behold Christ approaching Jerusalem, I want to identify some key qualities about Jesus that should compel you to embrace him and worship him as king. Last Sunday, Marshall so helpfully presented the beautiful display of Mary's worship of Christ And in our time this morning, we'll continue to consider the worthiness of Christ to be embraced and to be worshipped as king as he enters Jerusalem. And so, first, as you picture Jesus entering and coming toward Jerusalem, here comes the prophesied king. That's the first quality. He is the prophesied king. Verse 12 On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and 
went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so it was on the next day that the large crowd of people caught wind that Jesus will be coming. This crowd is comprised of people who've traveled into Jerusalem in anticipation of celebrating the Passover. They've gathered palm branches. Now, palm branches were not typically associated with Passover. They were associated with the Feast of Booths. So what we see here is a customary means of honoring a leader, celebrating a victory. This custom likely developed during the intertestamental period. Simon the Maccabee led the Jews to victory over Syrian oppressors during this period. And the historical record shows that the people subsequently honored him with music and the waving of palm branches. Matthew tells us that the crowd welcoming Jesus placed their coats and placed palm branches on the road. And what they were doing was showing honor to a king as he's traveling down the road. When the people shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are shouting familiar language to them. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. These words were a sort of crescendo toward the end of the Hallel Psalms that were used to commemorate Israel's deliverance from Egypt by the salvation of Yahweh. I want us to turn to Psalm 118, but I want to look first in an earlier part of the psalm. Verses 10 through 14. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Here we have the psalmist describing a situation of being surrounded by nations. But then he conveys that Yahweh will save Now drop down to verses 25 and 26. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. These verses contain a plea for the one who comes in the name of Yahweh to save them. The words, do save, is a translation of Hosanna. Hosanna basically means save now. So as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, we see Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 fulfilled. Now let's look back at John chapter 12, verse 13. We see here that they also call him the king of of Israel. The king is spoken of in a lot of other places in the Old Testament. He is the one who, according to Genesis 49.10, would be a descendant of Judah, of the tribe from whom the scepter would not depart. 
and the Messiah would come and take the throne which is rightfully his and be the final and permanent king. The genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth traces from Judah's son, Perez, all the way down to David so that we see the kingly line of Judah runs down to David. And then there's Second Samuel chapter 7. We see God making a covenant with David that a descendant of his would reign forever on his throne. So we have the fulfillment of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. We also have identified some other key texts that set up the expectation of a coming king of Israel, the Messiah in the line of Judah and of David. And then in verse 14 of John 12, we get another prophecy that Jesus fulfills as he approaches Jerusalem. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The other gospel writers give more details about how Jesus comes by this young donkey. He sent two of his disciples to fetch the young donkey and also its mother from a nearby village. These disciples were to tell whoever, if anyone were to question them, they were to say, the Lord has need of it. And Jesus says, they'll, they'll let you take the animals. And sure enough, that's exactly how it takes place. They go, they're untying the animals, going to take them. They get questioned. The Lord has need of it. People let them take the animals. Then the disciples throw their coats on the colt, and Luke says they help Jesus up onto the colt. John uses then the words, as it is written, in reference to this event of Jesus riding on a donkey's colt. As it is written, he indicates that this particular detail about Jesus' entry into the city had been written as a prophecy, and Jesus is now fulfilling it. It's from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. And I want us to turn to Zechariah, but before we go to Zechariah 9, verse 9, let's go to chapter 2 of Zechariah, verses 8 through 10. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So Zechariah identifies one who's sent by Yahweh to deliver Jerusalem from nations that plunder them. It sounds similar to what we heard in Psalm 118. All nations surrounded me, but blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh to save us. Here in Zechariah 2, they are to sing for joy and to be glad at the coming of this one who will deliver them from plundering nations. Now let's move over to Zechariah chapter 8. Verses 13 
through 15. It will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purpose to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. I want you to keep those words, do not fear, in mind. Now we go to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jerusalem is to rejoice at the coming of her her king with a shout of triumph. He is just and he is endowed with salvation. Thus it would make sense to cry out, Hosanna, save now when the king is coming. Now keep in mind that it says rejoice greatly here. And we're going to go back to John 12. And in verse 15, if you'll notice, John uses the words here, fear not, instead of the rejoice greatly that we saw in Zechariah 9, verse 9. And that's part of why I walked us through the verses in Zechariah 2 and then in Zechariah 8 before going to Zechariah 9. It's because I believe John is pulling forward the broader context of Zechariah into what he's saying, not necessarily just quoting a verse, but there's more in view from Zechariah in what he's pointing out. Zechariah 8 said to fear not. Though they had become a curse among the nations, he would save them and they would become a blessing. In Zechariah 2.10 and Zechariah 9.9, we see that Israel is told to sing for joy, to be glad, to rejoice greatly, for the king is coming and he is endowed with salvation. He will deliver them from the nations that plunder them. They are to fear not, and they are also to rejoice greatly because the king is coming. So here we have a a lot of connections that we've made between what is taking place as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and what has been written about it beforehand in the scripture. And that brings us to verse 16 of John 12. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. His disciples don't exactly make all the connection to Zechariah 9 when they're told to go and fetch that that young, that colt, that young donkey. They're not piecing together that their prophecy is being fulfilled as they're doing this. This says something about the disciples in their progression of coming to grasp who Jesus was and what he came to do. 
It also says something about the nature of Scripture. In the Scripture are things written of Him. Things previously foretold about Him, now being fulfilled by Him. John 10.35 says of Scripture that it cannot be broken. All that God has said will happen, will happen. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 18 that not even the smallest letter or stroke of the Scripture would pass away. All will be fulfilled. All that God has said will happen, will happen. We can also see the sovereignty of God highlighted when we see these prophecies in Scripture fulfilled. The religious leaders had been wanting to get at Jesus quietly and secretly to seize him by stealth and to kill him, but Jesus is going to force the issue with them. He is going to make things very public. As he, in a very public way, fulfills these prophecies, he demonstrates his sovereignty. Everything is happening on his timetable. He is driving what's happening here in order to fulfill the Scripture that cannot be broken. Think about what you hold in your hands. The very Word of the living God. A book breathed out by God Himself. A book that is without error, that is perfect, unchanging, infallible, unbreakable, and sufficient to equip you for all that pertains to life and godliness. David describes God's word as sweeter than honey, even the drippings of the honeycomb. And so I plead with you, don't neglect such a treasure. Immerse yourself in it. Meditate in it day and night, and you will be like the blessed man of Psalm 1, who is a fruitful tree planted by streams of water and in whatever he does he prospers i've heard multiple people here tell me that they have a relationship where they have someone they're keeping each other accountable to read the word every day i'd encourage you if you're struggling to do that to be consistent to be in god's word imitate that example have someone in your life that that can hold you accountable to that that can help you to treat the Scripture like the treasure that it is. And know that the God who spoke this Word is sovereign. He is bringing to pass every detail exactly as He revealed it. And He's doing so for the glory of His name and for the good of all who put their trust in this King of whom these things have been written. Some of you are experiencing hard providences. And it's God's unbreakable Scripture that carries you. An unbreakable Scripture with unbreakable promises. Romans eight twenty eight, God is working all things together for good toward those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That is unbreakable. And then verse 29 the the chief good being that he's conforming us to the image of his son. He's making us more like Jesus through the things that we suffer. That truth carries us. The unbreakable scripture 
and God's sovereignty, knowing that God is in control of every detail of what is happening, and he's driving it all in your life to make you like Jesus. He's doing good to you. It may not feel good what you're going through, but it is good because God is working all things together for good toward you who love him and are called according to his purpose. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he was coming as the prophesied king. He was fulfilling what had been foretold about him in the scripture. And he's doing so as one who is sovereign over all things. It's his timetable that all these events are taking place according to. So you've seen the prophesied king approaching. Now as you continue to picture him coming to Jerusalem, here comes the humble king. I want us to go back to Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This king is humble. It's interesting, in Zechariah 10, verse 3, there's mention of a majestic battle horse. And you might expect that Zechariah would describe this king as coming on something like that, a majestic battle horse. But by contrast, he describes this king coming not only on a donkey instead of a horse, but on a donkey's colt. This is a further picture and way of of showing his humility He's not coming on a majestic battle horse with the pomp. He's coming on a donkey's colt. The humility of this king is not only mentioned here. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says he has no stately form about him or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He comes in humble form. When it came time for him to be born, there was no room for him in the inn. At one point during his ministry, a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He told the weary and heavy laden, Take my yoke upon you. Learn for me, from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And in John chapter 13, this king will take the humble position of a slave and wash his disciples' feet. Back in 1 Samuel 8, Israel demanded to have a king like the nations. And so God gave them a king like the nations in Saul. And then God had Samuel warn them. He warned them that he would take from the people to serve himself he would oppressively make, him, make them his slaves. And then they would cry out in that day, but the Lord would not answer. The humble king is nothing like this. 
Two of Jesus' disciples selfishly and pridefully wanted to secure a position to his left and to his right in the kingdom. And so Jesus saw this as a great teaching moment. He described how the rulers of the Gentiles, rulers of the nations, lord their authority over the people. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus used his authority as king to serve and to give himself as a ransom for the benefit of his people. I want you to look with me now at Philippians chapter 2, where Christ is held forth as the preeminent example of humility. Paul is telling the Philippians that the key to unity among them is humility. He then tells them more specifically that they need to adopt the humble mindset that Jesus had. Let's pick up in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, we'll stop there for a moment and just point out that existed there is actually a present participle. He was and is and always will be God. He's never not been God at any point, even in the incarnation. And he was willing to add a human nature to himself. That's the sense in which he emptied himself in verse 7, subjecting himself to real human life, human experiences. And he was willing to take the position of a slave. Verse 8 tells us that he was humble in obedience to his Father's will, which brought him to the chief expression of humble service and sacrifice, that he gave his very life to save sinners. As you think about this aroma of humility that emanates from Jesus, does that not stir your heart to worship him? What a glorious king we have. There is no one like him. He is marvelous. He is majestic. Words really can't even do justice to capture his worthiness. He is pure goodness. He is sheer delight. This humble king is the king that you need. As we consider the humility of this king and Paul's emphasis on the need that we have for this kind of humility... I urge you, church, be on guard against pride. Listen to Jonathan Edwards describe the sin of pride. Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. It was the first sin that ever was and lies lowest in the foundation of Satan's whole building and is the most difficultly rooted out, and is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts, and often creeps in insensibly into the midst of religion, and sometimes under the disguise of humility. The pride that creeps into religion and manifests as false humility is one of the most dangerous and deceptive forms of pride. Pride will corrupt your life and it will cause fractures in the church. 
if it's allowed to fester and thrive in your hearts. I've been greatly helped by Stuart Scott's comments on pride and humility. In particular, he's pointed out that it's not a question of whether you have pride. It's a matter of where it is in your life and how much is there. The battle with pride is a daily fight. If you think you have it beat and dealt with, that's actually a proud thought itself. It will be a fight until we are glorified. But let me tell you something. In your fight against pride, you mustn't start by focusing on yourself and how you can make yourself more humble. People make that mistake. In fact, our problem is that we focus too much on ourselves. What you need to do is what Paul is telling you to do. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in his divinity. I love that you've been studying the attributes of God in the first hour. And when you look at the glory of God displayed in his attributes, it's a humbling experience. Or it should be, if you're processing it correctly. When you behold God's greatness, it helps to put you in your proper place as his creature. Paul asks the question in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? God, as supreme creator and sovereign, owns everything, including you and me. All that we have received, it's come from Him. All that we have, it's come from His hand. So we really have no grounds for boasting in anything regarding ourselves. All the boasting should be in God, who is glorious and worthy of worship. And we must also look at Jesus with respect to His humanity. He lived out perfect humility. Thus, he is the preeminent example of humility for us. But not only this, it was that very humility of his by which he suffered and died to pay the penalty for our pride and arrogance toward God and others. What we do have that has not been, what do we, what do we, have that has not been given to us. Everything's been given. That, that includes our salvation. It's a work of grace. It's a gift from God so that no man may boast. And if it's by His grace that, that, that we have come to know Him, it is also by His grace that we continue on walking with Him. It's by His grace that we can prayerfully fight that daily fight against pride as we have our eyes fixed on our King Jesus and we seek to be like Him in His humility. The key to unity is humility. I want to encourage you, church, to outdo one another in following Christ's humble example and in obeying Paul's exhortation in Philippians 2, verse 3, to regard one another as more important than yourselves, and to consider others' interests, not only your own. Whether at home, or at work, or at church, or whatever interactions you're having with others, strive by the grace of God to serve humbly like our humble King. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, He came as the prophesied King, and He came as a humble King. And finally, as you picture Jesus coming into Jerusalem, 
Here comes the hated king. Look back at John chapter 12 and verse 17. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb raised him from the dead and continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees' worst nightmare seems to be unfolding right before their eyes. They've been trying every which way to bring down Jesus' ministry, and now it's like the whole world is going after him. They feel that their beloved power and influence is slipping from their fingers. The harder they've tried, the more Jesus seems to be succeeding. Those who had witnessed Lazarus' resurrection continue spreading the word about it. So now you have a whole other crowd of people merging together with the one that had come down for the feast, and it's driving the Pharisees crazy. They hate it because they hate Christ. What irony there is that they claim to be followers of Yahweh, but they can't stand the idea that the whole world is going to the, to the Messiah. They are blinded by their pride, and therefore they despise Jesus Speaking of the world going after him, there's another bit of irony here. The next couple verses have some Greeks that are going to come, and, and, and they're looking for Jesus. It's a little foretaste of the trajectory we see in the book of Acts, where the gospel will begin to make its way into all the world, and people among the nations will trust in him. Despite the Pharisees' best efforts, everything seems to be going the opposite of what they're trying to bring about. Now, you might be thinking, why call Jesus the hated king here? Sure, the, the Pharisees hate him, but the crowds are praising him. The, the majority of people are celebrating right now. Well, it would only be a matter of days before many hands carrying palm branches and many mouths that were shouting, Hosanna, will turn to shaking fists and lips crying, crucify him. More and more hatred of Christ will manifest over the course of the days that are ahead following this entry to Jerusalem. Back in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, John notes that early on in Jesus' ministry, he was in Jerusalem at a previous Passover during the feast, and, and many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew these people, what was going on in their hearts. He knew that many of these people would turn against him. Now, why is that? Why will these people turn on him? It's because they have a superficial picture of who he is. They have a certain idea of who he is and what he's going to do. They're looking to him to liberate them from the occupation of Rome. 
This brings up another reason I walked us through all those spots in Psalm 118 and in Zechariah earlier to establish some context in them. We saw in both of them the common concern that the Jews were being oppressed by other nations and they're seeking salvation from Yahweh concerning nations. I want us to go back to Psalm 118 to pick up another detail there. Verse 18. says, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. There's a connection here between oppression by nations and the discipline of the Lord. And that's the case in Jesus' day. Their occupation by Rome is the Lord's discipline on them. Occupation by Rome is not their biggest problem. It's a symptom of a deeper problem. Something else is going to have to be dealt with first before they can experience the salvation from the oppression of their enemies that they had in mind when they're shouting the hosannas and the blesseds of verse 25 and 26 in Psalm 118. Look at verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The builders rejecting the stone is representative of the Jewish religious leaders rejecting Christ. The religious leaders will soon be salivating when Judas brokers a deal with them to betray Jesus, and they will get the crowds turned against Jesus as these people realize he's not who they want him to be. He's not going to do what they were wanting him to do. They will turn on him. All of this will happen ultimately because Jesus came to deal with a deeper problem. Roman occupation is the symptom. Matthew 1, verse 21, Joseph is told by the angel in a dream to name the baby Jesus. Then the angel tells him the reason for that. It is that he will save his people from their sins. That is their deepest problem. And thus, that is Jesus' focus as he heads to Jerusalem. All the turn of events that will transpire in a matter of days is going to be used by God to secure salvation from sin for all that the Father has given to the Son to raise up on the last day. The manifold wisdom of God is on display as he takes such an evil act by men as the slaughter of the king and uses it to secure salvation for his people. Now I want to show you in Zechariah that there is a time coming when something glorious will happen to this nation that went from shouting hosannas to crying crucify him. It's Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There's coming a day when the nation that rejected the king will look upon the one whom they've pierced, and they will mourn in repentance, and they will embrace the king. How glorious. One more from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. This king is Yahweh himself, and he will extend his reign of his kingdom over all the earth. What a glorious future this king will usher in when he returns. But in this age, the world continues to hate Christ continues to hate this king. And the reason the world hates Jesus is because their deeds are evil and he is good. Perhaps there's someone here today who has come to realize you've never truly repented of your sin and trusted in this good king. You never truly embraced him as king over your life. You're still living your own way. You're a slave to pride and and various other sins. You need to know that the path you're on will lead you to face the eternal wrath of Almighty God for your sins against Him. I plead with you to flee from the wrath to come, to turn from your sinful ways, and to embrace the King who alone can save you. He is the Son of God who took on human flesh like ours. He lived a perfect life on behalf of His people so that they could be credited with his righteousness. He was crucified, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins against God. And then he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death for his people. If you reject this king, you will perish. But if you receive this king, you will be reconciled to God and you will live forever with him. He says that the one who comes to him He will certainly not cast out. Come to him. Trust in this good king who is mighty to save. For those of us who are trusting in Christ, the hatred of an evil world toward Christ highlights his goodness, which should compel us to worship this hated king, to love this hated king. He is hated by the world, yet he is the beloved one of his father, the one who is well-pleased with him. Those of us who love him need to be prepared likewise to be hated by the world as we associate with him. Jesus tells his disciples later in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Let me encourage you, saints, live boldly for the King. Understand that it is a privilege to suffer for the one who suffered 
and bled and died for you. March forward in fulfilling the great commission, knowing that all authority has been given to him that is in heaven and on earth, and knowing that he is with you even to the end of the age to do what he's called you to do. I do hope that your heart is stirred to embrace and to worship this glorious king. He is worthy of worship as our prophesied king, fulfilling the unbreakable prophecies foretold about him and driving the timing of all things according to his sovereign plan. He is worthy of our worship as our humble king. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Became obedient as a man to his father's will, even to the point of death on the cross for sinners like you and me. And he is worthy of our worship as the hated king. Evil men hate him because he is good. Those who have been born again by his spirit should delight in his goodness and be willing to suffer for him and to bear the reproach of identifying with him. Our king is worthy of worship. Let us worship him, not only with our lips, but with the whole of our lives as living sacrifices to him. I leave you with these words from Revelation 5, verses 11 and 12. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your unbreakable word that reveals to us your good gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of this Lamb who was slain so that we might have our sins forgiven and washed away. Move our hearts, Lord, to wholeheartedly embrace and worship this prophesied humble hated king. May our lives be lived for the one who lived and died and rose on our behalf. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we